0: Team. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible with me to First Timothy as we begin a study of a book that tells us how to do church. Have you ever had a close friend, a relationship that was so dear to you that that person seemed like a part of your family, perhaps even more precious than your own brother or sister, perhaps even more precious than your parent? I've had a few of those relationships in my life. I remember a family that we became close to in our ministry in Kentucky, and still today out of all the people, the hundreds of people in that church, they're the ones that we stay in closest contact with. We see them each time we go back. He happens now to be a state legislator in Kentucky and is serving the Lord as a teacher in a school system in northern Kentucky, but a legislator as well. And whenever we get together, well, you know, we just let our hair down, we have a good time. Because we're close, we're like family. Our kids, when, we were all, when they were all small, they thought they were really cousins to each other. Those kinds of relationships are precious. And that's how Paul felt about Timothy, whom he calls my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. Elsewhere, he, he refers to Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He says, He served with me like a child serving his father. Paul apparently had led this young man to Christ on his first missionary journey as he went to the city of Lystra, where Timothy was reared. At that time, Timothy was probably a teenager. He may have been as old as 18 or 19. Some think he was even younger than that. Then just a few years later, three or four years later, Timothy had grown so much in the Lord that the Apostle asked him to become a part of his traveling missionary team. What an honor was Timothy's. They traveled together, they ate together, worked together, taught together. So much so that the Apostle says of him to the Philippians, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Have you ever seen Anne of Avonlea? She was always looking for someone of kindred spirit. And she found a few. Well, that's the way that Paul felt about this young man, Timothy. Such relationships are treasures in life. And if you don't have many of those, I want to encourage you to work at it really work at having those kinds of close relationships. After Paul's release from his first confinement in a Roman prison, it seems that he traveled again for several years. This is not recorded in the book of Acts, but early historians of the church tell us about Paul's travels after his first imprisonment. Then later he was imprisoned again, you recall, and ultimately martyred in Rome. In that interim period between the two imprisonments, Paul did a good deal of traveling and on one of his journeys he went through Ephesus where he had spent years of his life, where he had led many people to Christ and baptized them. He went back to Ephesus and with him on that occasion was Timothy. Apparently because of some problems that had arisen in the church, Paul left Timothy behind. He said, Timothy, I want you to stay here while I go on. He went on to the area of Macedonia, and there he penned a letter back to Timothy, and that's what we're studying together. I invite you to to open your Bible and and follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, And immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now as we think about the book of 1 Timothy, we need to understand that this book is written to a pastor. That doesn't mean that its content is only relevant for pastors, it's relevant for all of us, but it does mean that he's going to talk about a pastor's responsibility and the role of various people in the church. I think we have a key verse for the book of Timothy in chapter 3, where in verse 14 he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed. I write, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so he is writing back to Timothy, who is now probably in his mid-30s, possibly as old as 40, and we all know how young 40 is. He is writing to this young man to tell him how he is to do church, what it means to to have church, what a church is about, what are some of the orders for the church. And so I've arranged an outline of the book along that theme, and if you have your outline in your folder, you can turn to it. Chapter 1, Paul explains that if we're going to do church, if we're going to be a church, or if we're going to act like a church, then in the first place, we have to stay on course with the message. We're going to talk about that today and next week, possibly the week after that. He goes on in chapter 2 then to say, If we're going to do church, we must arrange order in its ministry. It's a certain order for things. Third, he says, If we're going to do church, we have to maintain standards for those who are leaders. In chapter 4, he tells us that if we're going to do church, we must guard against the enemies who will attack us. And then in the last two chapters, he says if we're really going to do church, if we're going to be a church, then we have to resolve conflicts among the members of the church. Now amid the contemporary confusion that exists today about what it means to be a church, we need to take a fresh look at what God has to say about it. To be a church... In the first place, a congregation must stay on course with God's message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now someone says, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Well, you would think it would be obvious that to be a church, one must stay on course with God's message. But it's not as obvious to everyone as we might think. For the sake of cultural relevance there are those who are willing to compromise the message of Jesus Christ. In order to have intellectual acceptance by some, there are churches that are willing to change the message of Jesus Christ. For the sake of being active in popular social causes, There are so-called churches that are willing to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do not think that this first statement is as obvious as it may seem to you. That in order for a congregation to truly be a church, it must stay on course with God's message. Forsaking that message, or diluting it, or confusing it, forfeits the claim of a group of people to be a church in a biblical sense. So what I'm suggesting this morning is that while there are lots of people meeting even in our area under the name of church, in a biblical sense they are a church only if they have God's message proclaimed in their ministry. That is why I'm saying that in order to be a church, in order to do church, a congregation must stay on course with God's message. Well, that's what Paul writes about in chapter 1. He warns several times about going astray or turning aside, as he puts it in verse 6. There are some men, he says, who have missed the mark They have gone astray in their message. The result of that is that they have turned aside to fruitless discussion. I am especially aware of that verb, turned aside, today because it's a medical term meaning to dislocate. And I have a back that is dislocated this morning. You may see that I am walking and standing tenderly uh, because of dislocation. Well, it can happen to your body. It can happen to your church as well. It can happen to your message. You see, and what was happening in the church at Ephesus apparently was a a temptation to turn aside from the gospel message. There were some who had already strayed off course and had become dislocated. They had twisted away from that message. Paul warns about that. Now, to stay on course, what we need to do is to use God's navigation chart. If I can use that sort of a picture for you. God has a navigation chart which He outlines for us in this paragraph that we have read. And on this chart, He tells us, with regards to our message, there is a port that we're heading toward, there is a destination. He says there are perils that we have to be aware of on this chart so that we stay clear of the peril. And he says that there is plotting that needs to be done. So let's think of it in those terms. The port of our course is changed lives. That's the goal. That's the destination that our preaching our instruction needs to have that's where we're headed with our ministry it is the transformed lives of all those who believe that is our goal in other words the port of our course or the goal we're headed for is not political activism it is not social causes it is not cultural renewal nor is it national recovery Not that any of these things are bad in themselves. They may even be a part of a byproduct of what we do. But the point is that our goal, our port, is individual lives that are transformed by the power of God. How can a church know if it's on track? The answer is, check the lives of its people. You don't necessarily look at its size. You don't look at the annual budget. Its buildings can fool you. It may have a wonderful reputation. The only real way to know if a church is on course is to see the lives of its people. That's the goal that we seek in our message. Paul really reduces this to one word, but in verse 5 he says, the goal of our instruction is love. Love, the greatest of all Christian graces. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have what? Hello? Love for one another. Right. He says, the Apostle Paul says, now there abides faith hope and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. It's the greatest of all. So Paul seems to pick out that word and he summarizes transformed living in love. I think that's fair enough. Because when one loves, there is a willingness to seek the welfare of others, even enemies, at personal sacrifice for the glory of God. That's what love is. He says this love needs to come from a pure heart, from a good conscience and sincere faith. Eugene Peterson has written a paraphrase of the New Testament. If you don't have it, you need to get it. It's called The Message. If you enjoy living the Living Bible, for example, a paraphrase of the Bible, you'll even more enjoy Eugene Peterson's The Message. Someone told me recently that he was in a unique place to write a paraphrase of the Bible because in the last 20 years he's not even read an English translation of the Bible. All he's been reading is the Greek and the Hebrew. Well, it takes a very special person to do that sort of thing. And because of his acquaintance with the original languages, as well as his unique ability as a writer... Gene Peterson has written this paraphrase, and he says regarding this verse, this is how he puts it, the whole point of what we're urging is simply love, love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith, a life open to God. That's what we're talking about. The port of the course that we're on, the goal of this course is changed lives. It's You see, it's not enough for us to be hearers of the word. We must be transformed doers of the word. The measurement of a church is not how much its people know about the Bible's content, it is how much the congregation applies in its life. That tells you whether a church is on course. It is not adequate merely to study the Bible and to know its facts, as important as that is. Those facts must be allowed to transform us. How does that happen? By welcoming God's truth into our hearts. Not merely taking it into our heads, but allowing it to sink into the deepest part of us. And there choosing to yield to what it says, to fashion our lives accordingly. We were at the State Fair a few weeks ago and uh, went to the, uh, what's it called, Heritage Heritage Square, and back in there was a blacksmith shop. Did anybody get back there? We happened to be there at the time when the blacksmith was doing his work, putting his iron into the forge, heating it up, getting it nice and hot, and then putting it on the anvil and pounding it. I don't think I'm going to do that move again. Pounding that anvil. And uh, what happened? Well, that that metal was conformed to it. You see, that's what needs to happen when we come to church, to a service. That's what needs to happen when we open our Bibles to read it. That's what needs to happen in our cell groups, in our small churches, that our lives become warm to it, so that our lives then can be shaped after the Word of God, transformed to it. One of our strategies adopted as a church is to teach God's Word for life change. Our concern is for more than content. It must go beyond that to change in all of us who are hearers. And So we cannot be content in our Sunday school classes, in our small churches, in our cells, in our Bible studies, wherever in our ministry, unless we are seeing changed lives. Merely dumping the content of the Bible into people's minds produces arrogant airheads. It creates critical spirits of self-absorbed people who are lazy and uncommitted. It is insufficient, And when it happens, it means that a church is off course. For when a church is on course, it will reach the goal of love, changed lives, conformed to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my point is that we know we are on course when we see changed lives. And that's the port toward which we as a church have chosen to head. Secondly, the peril of our course is identified in this text as strange doctrines. He says these we must avoid. These are doctrines which are different than those that harmonize with the message of Christ. Here Paul is concerned about false teaching from what were called Judaizers, people who were committed to the Old Testament law and sought To mix that law with the grace of God. There also may have been some Gnostics among them, but primarily it was Judaizers. And so they were misusing the law. Now, Paul says the law has a good purpose, it has a lawful use, and what's its use? To expose sin. It shows where we're short of God's glory. It reveals in us the dark spots. The law's purpose is to expose the sinfulness of sin. The law defines sin. Sin has always existed even before the law of Moses, but when God gave that law, when God gave the Ten Commandments, it defined sin so that it could be seen and understood. These people were saying that somehow there is hope in the law. That is that by keeping the Ten Commandments and believing in Jesus Christ, one could be saved. Paul says, bad message. Strange doctrine. We don't become saved by keeping the law. The law tells us we need a Savior. Its purpose is then fulfilled. These people were confused about that. You see the Our hope is not in ourselves, it's not in the law. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So there's a warning here about false doctrines which sidetrack from God's kingdom and God's purpose. He says in verse 4, These things do not further the administration of God, that is God's purpose, God's carrying out His purpose. Strange doctrines never do that. Well, you say, we don't have Judaizers around anymore. Well, perhaps not by that name, but we do have false doctrines that the church must be aware of. The church, and I'm using that term in the broadest sense, is today being told that uh, we should adopt what I'm terming populist theology. Theology that is fashioned and formed by populist movements in our nation, in our culture. The gay movement is having an effect on the theology of some so-called churches, as is the pro-abortion movement, as is feminism. And what he is telling us here is that we are to be sure that the message stays pure. We're to stay on course and not give heed to false doctrines, strange doctrines, that come from populist theology. And then there is prosperity theology. We must be aware of that teaching that says somehow if, if we are faithful to God and sacrifice for God and do all the things we should, we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That is a theology that is somewhat declining, I think, today in the church, but it's out there. You hear it on television. You get mailings from people who teach this strange doctrine. They're off course. There is a psychologized theology. The gospel of self-help. The gospel of the higher power. Which mixes together the feeble attempts of man to help himself and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Strange doctrine. How are we to recognize these doctrines by testing them against the Word of God? We're not to believe everything we read or hear as though it's the truth. The great American axiom is, does it work? If it does, it must be okay. The Bible's axiom is, is it true? If it's true, it's okay and it'll work. We are so pragmatic in America. We look for what works, and if some teaching comes along that seems to help the human condition, there is a tendency to absorb it and adopt it and bring it into the Word of God. We are not to compromise in any sense the power of the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to transform lives. If you're interested in this sort of of, uh, thinking, these notions... I would encourage you to get a hold of a book entitled No God But God by Oz Guinness and John Seal who are the editors of it which exposes some of the strange doctrines in the church today. So as we think about God's navigation chart he's given us the port. He said in journey we are to avoid the peril of strange doctrines which will wreck us. We have to navigate around them in order to stay on course. And Finally, he says, the plotting of our course is by sound teaching. Navigators have checkpoints on their charts. At these points, they use various means to find out where they are. Sometimes there are visual sightings. This was especially common Before we had modern technology, Uh, submarines had to come to the surface and use the stars, or perhaps if they thought they were close to some body of land, they would check their chart and see if the land was where they thought it should be by visual sightings by the stars. Today we have satellites so that airplanes and ships and submarines under the sea can nearly instantly tell exactly where they are within a few feet on the globe. So they can plot their course by these measurements. How do we plot our course so that we don't stray? The apostle says it is by sound teaching. He says in verse 10, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. You see, sound teaching exposes us when we have gone astray. Sound teaching gives us assurance that we're on track or it warns us that we have strayed. Sound teaching helps us to know where we are. Sound teaching from the Bible condemns sin. It doesn't redefine it. It doesn't excuse sin. It doesn't say you were just born that way. You can't help it. Sound teaching confronts sin and condemns it. It it calls for repentance, not recovery. Sound teaching also glorifies God, not man. It points to God as Savior, not to man as his own Savior. It honors God. It's not egocentric with its theories and its therapies. Sound teaching also stimulates to life change, not merely to religious knowledge. Today in America, there are pulpits that apologetically give sermonettes for Christianettes, who give out social commentaries on the issues of the day, who provide humorous monologues that entertain and tickle the ears of the hearers, and some of those churches are filling up. The only problem is the lack of sound teaching will lead those churches to shipwreck. Because it is only the sound teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he mentions in verse 11, the gospel of the blessed God that will keep us on course. So we need constant sound teaching for the plotting of our course so that we eventually get to our goal. How are we to do church? Church. We're to do, church, by staying on course with God's message. How do we do that? Well, We do that by remembering that our goal is changed lives. That's our port. That there are perils of strange doctrines that are out there that will lead us astray. We must be alert to those. We stay on course by constantly checking ourselves against the sound teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We as a church need to stay on course. But we do that by each of us individually staying on course. And so the question that I want to close with is this. Are you on track spiritually? Have you in the first place had a saving, genuinely saving experience with Jesus Christ? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He is your Lord and Savior? And should you drop dead today? or you'd be involved in a terrible accident like those 132 people on the airplane the other day, you would at that instant of death go to be with the Lord. I hope you have that assurance. If not, will you trust the Lord Jesus genuinely and truly? Are you allowing His Word to change your life? Is your life hot enough spiritually that it will conform itself to the teaching of the Word of God? Are you checking yourself to be sure you're on course? These are important questions for us as we track ourselves spiritually. As we begin a new fall of ministry with excitement and opportunities, I hope it's a time for all of us just to stop and reflect for a moment and say, Lord, am I who and what and where I ought to be. And if not, then let's say, Lord, get me on course. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. You are gracious and kind and loving. And today as we pause at the end of this message, It's a time for us to reflect individually on whether we, personally, are on track spiritually, or if somehow we have been twisted and turned aside and gone astray. There may be some of us who are near rocks, who have broken up because we've shipwrecked. Thank you that you are willing to give us a new beginning, that you're willing to point us in the right direction, you're willing to be on board with us and be our captain steer our ship I pray that right now you might truly be the captain and lord of each of our lives is he the lord of your life my friend before I finish praying if he's not would you just lift your hand and say pastor today I am by the uplifted hand saying Jesus Christ will now be the lord of my life I've not been listening to him I've gone astray I've not been on course, but I today at this moment am making Jesus Christ the Lord of my life, yielding myself to him. Would you lift your hand just for a moment? Yes. Someone else? Father, I thank you that you have spoken to this heart, and I pray that whatever the issues are, By your grace, you would move into that life and bring about that redirection that is so needed today. We thank you that in your grace, your amazing grace, you minister to us where we are. And I pray that for those of us who can honestly say we believe we're on course, I pray that we today Will be allowing you to change our lives by your word, by the work of your spirit. Would you stand together with me, please, with head bowed, eyes closed, as we sing this chorus, expressing our yieldedness to the Lord? I surrender all. I surrender. All.